As I began the journey of shifting my career to a job that aligned with my values and beliefs, having an education in health coaching has been transformational. Through the Institute of Integrative Nutrition, you can become a certified health coach to empower your relationship with food, health, and wellness, live your dreams, earn while you learn, and embark on a new path. Join the global community of like-minded change agents who are here to empower, inspire, and motivate you to create the life you've always dreamed of by clicking the link in the show notes. And by doing so, you'll receive $2,000 off tuition when you pay in full or $1,500 off tuition if you choose the payment plan option. Or you can mention my name, Samantha Nagel, spelled N-A-G-E-L. Discover how to take a holistic and nourishing approach to health and wellness today. Welcome to the Empowered Spirituality Podcast. Join me, your host, Samantha Nagel, a certified integrative nutrition health coach, poet, witch, and work in progress for grounding meditations, inspiring interviews, and reflections about spirituality, holistic health, and the world around us. Join in every Thursday as we explore what empowered spirituality means to us in today's world. Hello, welcome to this episode of Empowered Spirituality. This is going to be a follow-up on the episode that I did last week. Um, where I unpacked some popular diets that I had been seeing in the media and with friends and family and people I work with. Um, So that was really interesting. And so for this episode, I'm going to be diving into food racism and how that plays a part in our, like how we classify foods as healthy and unhealthy and how that can also show up in the diet industry as well. Um, and more specifically, how it's capitalized on, too. Um, so just so you know, I'm not an expert in this. Uh, it's not something that I um, that was my area of study necessarily. It's just something that I've been thinking about and reading about and researching. So I'm sure there are people who are more knowledgeable in this area. And I would love to actually find someone to come on and talk a little bit more about um, food racism, fat phobia, um, like capitalism slash diet culture. I think that would be really interesting to have someone who is an expert on. So just know that that this is mostly just um, my observations, the research that I've done, and it's not comprehensive. Um, and also there's no judgment. So some of the things I'm going to say are going to be a little, I don't want to say edgy, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I mean like same with last episode, right? A lot of people like the diets that I basically kind of said I didn't really love. Um, so if you fall in the same category of, of liking these diets or, or you notice this in yourself, I'm not necessarily saying that you're a bad person. I'm not, not necessarily, I'm not saying that at all, <laughs> that you're a bad person or that you even need to change the way you're eating, right? That's always up to you and your body, as well as any medical team that you work with. 
Um, this is just information and research and opinions. Cool. So before I dive in, I wanted to put out the call to action <laughs> to let me know what you would like to see on the podcast. I still have a couple more months left in season two. Um, probably going to go till October. So that's like three more months, I guess. Um, maybe November. I really did enjoy taking the winter off last time because I felt like I was able to come back with a fresh perspective and felt really um, rejuvenated. So I do want to keep that and keep that winter time sacred for myself um, and then maybe come back in the spring like I did last year or this year. Um, but I would like to know what you would like to see. So I only have a couple more scheduled episodes that are interviews coming out. Um, so tossing around the idea of what you would like to see, if there's anyone in particular you'd like to see as a guest, any topics that you want to see featured, types of guests, right? I would love, love, love to know that. This is, you know, of course, anything that anyone creates is for themselves. Um, I'm creating the podcast that I would have loved to listen to. I also just really enjoy doing it, right? But it's also for you. And I want to know what you want and what feels good to you. Um, and I'm also kind of exploring bringing some people on to chat more than just having like the monologue style interview. I think it could be fun to introduce a little bit more of a collaborative conversation around things. Um, so that could even look like having people who aren't experts, just regular, regular people. And we could chat about our experiences with certain topics. That would be cool too. So yeah, I'm kind of open to anything. We'll see what happens, but I would love to have your opinion. So... Um, the food racism, the food racism, I don't know why I said that. Um, before I dive into that, I want to do the briefest of backgrounds on the BMI. So I already went over this last week. I put a couple posts out about it, by the way, really intense reaction in the comments. I kind of forgot that how like strongly rooted diet culture and fat phobia is. Um, yeah, and I was surprised and hurt <laughs> at the feedback. But then it, it once I was able to sit with that a little bit, I realized that's why this is so important is that it is so deeply rooted and people do have such strong reactions to ideas of changing things or, or evolving things um, or having new perspectives. So I think these conversations are really important. And also, yes, it might be a recap, but also at the same time, we see so much information over and over and over again through probably our whole lives <laughs> or like a good part of it that really like idealizes things like the BMI and diet culture and fat phobia. Um, so I do want to spend a lot of time rewiring those things because it takes a lot of time to rewire those things. Um, so BMI, body max index. Nope. Yeah. Body mass index, not body max. Um, was created over 200 years ago. The sample was based off of the average like the average person was based on a small sample of white European men 
wasn't supposed to be a measure for health. It was also created in a really racist time, if you can believe. <laughs> um, and this was like used to kind of prove what the ideal person was, which is pretty yucky. And then it popped back up in the 1940s for insurance purposes. They wanted to see basically like the likelihood of dying. And so they brought back the BMI. Um, super shitty also. Then it was revamped in the 1970s. But again, that sample was not very good at all. And whiteness was really prioritized. Then in 1998, the NIH lowered the overweight definition, which created an obesity epidemic overnight. And actually, I was researching some stats for something else that I'm working on. Um, and I kept seeing like from 1997 to 2000, the overweight, the number of overweight people increased. I don't know what the number was. And I kept seeing that over and over again in different studies. And I thought, no, it didn't. Like people didn't change sizes. The definition for being overweight or obese changed. So it's not that suddenly there was an issue with obesity. It was suddenly they decided that being obese was a different thing. And I think that's just really important to know that this idea of overweight and obese, this threshold that we've made up, is made up. And it was made up by non-scientific terms um, and was never supposed to be a health measure. So when we think about diet culture, usually it's to help us or encourage us to lose weight. But if we're trying to reach the BMI of normal that that range doesn't really exist because we just made up that range, right? Um, and lastly, the researchers from the researchers, some researchers from the University of Pennsylvania have stated that the BMI is an inaccurate measure of body fat content. And Harvard Health has also said that it's fine, basically, um, but that it shouldn't be the only thing that people use for the BMI or for health and, and weight. I need to pause this. <laughs> I have my dog in here with me, which is kind of a wild card, but she's been very attached to me recently because uh, we had a lot of fireworks and I was the one who was like laying with her on the bathroom floor and she even got in the tub at one point and I laid with her in the tub for two hours. <laughs> so I think that created a bond that could not be broken. So I'm going to go let her out of the room right now. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk about how much money diet culture makes. And so the stats on this is really varied. So I would say there's like a window which is accurate. Like some said, let me just jump into it and then I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. So Americans spend about $33 billion each year on weight loss products. Um, and that was in 2020, I believe. And so other stats I saw were, were like 29,040, or sorry, 29 billion and 40 billion. So the one I saw most frequently was 33 billion. So all the stats I picked were in the middle of the range that I found. $33 billion each year on weight loss products. That's a lot of money. Diet and weight loss in... <sighs> I can't talk today. 
diet and weight loss industries have grown to be worth $71 billion. And some resources that I found said that was closer to $80 billion. And the, it's projected to just keep going up and up and up. But here's the thing. Even though there's more products and people are spending more money and the industry is worth more, obesity rates, quote unquote, obesity rates are the same. So obesity rates have not lowered. And I say obesity using the BMI scale, but with that idea that it doesn't mean anything, right? But if we're going to use that scale, it hasn't gone down. So even though there's more products and it sounds like more people are using them and more people are spending their money on them, nothing is really changing. So right there we can see that that doesn't work so well. In fact, 80% of people do not keep the weight off that they lose when they're dieting. And a lot of people end up gaining that weight back, right? And I'm also not saying that there's anything wrong with gaining weight, not at all. Um, but if these things are selling us on the promise to lose weight and it's not happening, uh, it just means that it's not a very effective way to go about our health or even to go around our weight. Numerous studies link chronic dieting with feelings of depression, low self-esteem, and increased stress. And that's also because chronic dieting causes the body to release adrenaline and cortisol because of the stress, because of the restrictive eating too. Um, and that causes your body to think, oh no, something's wrong, or I need to protect myself, or I need to really like hold on to this food that I'm getting because I don't know when my next food source is going to be. And that also doesn't help people lose weight. So that's interesting. <laughs> and also what's really interesting is the number one predictor of binge eating is restrictive eating or, or having a restrictive food diet. So if the goal here is to lose weight, um, restrictive eating has been shown time and time again to not be how we do this. So just want to point that out that the diet culture, it's not just me saying it's bad because <laughs> I don't like it, right? I think a lot of people, I didn't know people had that mentality actually, but I posted something and that was a lot of the feedback I got, which was basically like that I'm unhealthy and so I'm um, like rationalizing these things. And I wonder if that's a pretty common narrative, um, just from the amount of people that said it. Um, yeah, but that's not, that's not true. Like the diet industry just isn't helpful, but it is making a lot of money. And that's another thing too, right? If diets were helpful and healthy and helped us lose weight and maintain the weight and our health was good to go, then we wouldn't ever need to go on another diet. We would never need to buy another book or buy another product or buy another, I don't know, like is the whole 30 or whatever that is, do you have to buy like a packet, like a, like a month long thing, like a subscription? Um, we would, they couldn't sell those, right? Because it would work. And honestly, the most, I think, effective way that we can approach our health and even our weight, even though that's not something I focus on, is intuitive eating. It is sitting with ourselves, learning our hunger cues, learning more about our cycles, 
learning more about what we're craving in our body types, learning about the seasons of the earth and the year, um, where we live, how to grow seasonally, how to determine what foods are good for you, like organic versus pesticides, whatever, which actually I have another series coming where I'm going to be talking about how to read labels because that's actually quite interesting. It's not as straightforward as you would think, unfortunately. Um, like if we were just taught that, we wouldn't really have to purchase all these products. Yeah, super intri intriguing. Um, and just to reiterate something I said last week, which is that the research is not when when things seem too good to be true, they are. <laughs> um, a lot of the fad diets that I talked about last time, the people who perpetuate them, who are also the people who have a product associated with them or a book associated with them, they're stating these res resources or research studies that are really sensationalized and they're not including that the sample size was incredibly small and that certain variables weren't accounted for, right? Or they're not saying that it was never replicated. They're not saying that it's like they're telling you the big, glorious, kind of sensationalized information from these studies, but they're not telling us the the actual, like more data-driven research from these studies. Okay, so I think that kind of laid the foundation. We can move on to food racism. So this is a quote from McDill Daily. And the quote is, food racism happens when certain foods are excluded in favor of the dominant or white culture's idea of good foods, of good food. And what, what um, started this thought for me, I've thought about it before, but I was having a conversation with my partner and he was saying, I think I was just eating a bowl of rice because <laughs> we hadn't gone grocery shopping. And usually at the end of the week, if I'm hungry, my snack is rice. <laughs> um, and so I was eating just a bowl of rice. <laughs> um, and he said, is rice really that unhealthy for you? And I was like, I don't understand <laughs> the question. I what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, well, I've just been hearing all these things that, that rice is so unhealthy for you. And I said, well, like, I don't know, maybe if you're eating rice all the time and nothing else, and you're eating a lot of rice, maybe like, like it might not be the best thing, um, but I don't think it's unhealthy. Um, and we also went on to say like people, like like nutritionists and especially like TV doctors and TV nutritionists like Dr. Oz um, tend to like say this thing is bad. And like this thing is bad. And then everyone talks about how this one food is bad. And I'm using rice as an example, but I mean, I can think of so many other foods that we've kind of gone to war with almost. Um, when one, it's not that simple. Like someone who can't tolerate rice and can't properly digest rice, yeah, shouldn't have it. But like no rule works for all bodies and for all people. So I really don't like when people generalize food rules and people do this in the media all the time, especially like morning show people. <laughs> um, like the study that said that a glass of wine a week is good for you. And that this, that's not what the study said, but it was morning news people that really like perpetuated that and, and, and did news segments on it. 
Uh, but anyways, um, oh, but my second point was, I, I caught away from that, was that sure, maybe rice isn't like the most healthiest thing, whatever that means. Um, but think about the other things that we consume on a daily basis, like oat milk, for example. If you buy oat milk from a store, um, it likely has a lot of yucky chemicals in it that make it not so great. Um, alcohol, uh, like the shit we have in shampoo, stuff like that. Like we're eating and ingesting and incorporating harsh chemicals all the time. And when you think about that, like rice isn't really a big deal. It's kind of like um, uh, my best friend talked to me about this on season one, which was under the healing the earth or healing the planet, healing yourself episode in season one, towards the end of season one. So in like uh, September-ish, um, she's great. But um, she told the story about how all of these oil companies started putting out these tests or things that you could use to determine your footprint. And so it was kind of making people feel bad about their their footprint on the econ- on the the world. <laughs> I told you I can't talk to the climate, um, the environment. That's what I was trying to think of. Um, but really, they are the ones who are the biggest contribu- contributors to things that harm the environment. So I think it's kind of the same thing of like, we can really focus on rice or we can really focus on the things that are actually harming us. So anyways, and then <laughs> we were talking about how um, it's also racist to say that that rice is unhealthy. Lots of cultures use rice as a staple. Lots of cultures eat rice all the time and they're perfectly fine, but it's not a traditional U.S. food. Um, So it's interesting that it's labeled as racist. And actually Irene Lowe, she was the first, nope, she's the second guest of season two and she was on season one. So she's amazing and I love her so much. Um, posted something about how she was reclaiming Chinese food and how she had always heard that it's really unhealthy. Um, yeah. And I, I will look at the post and let you know, cause I'm really summarizing it cause it was a while ago and I don't remember exactly, but I thought that was really beautiful as well. And here's another quote from the same article. Ideas of health often presume a type of body. This doesn't take into account how other cultures see health nor does it acknowledge that that the dominant idea of a healthy body in Northern America, North American media is most often thin and white. Healthy bodies shouldn't be defined by what they look like. And that goes back to the BMI as well. The BMI has blatantly racist roots both times that it was created. And like, that's where we get our, our measures of, normal, overweight, and obese, um, and whatever else the categories are. And that's largely determined on what you look like, right? Because what you weigh is something that you can see on the outside, and health is truly what's everything about you, right? And a lot of people, I don't have the stats on this, but especially fat people and or people of color and or women or people who are in femme bodies, um, 
get dismissed really frequently at doctor's offices. And actually, there's something happening and something wrong, and doctors often dismiss them by saying, oh, you just need to lose weight. Or if it's um, someone with a period, they might say, oh, it's just normal period stuff, like normal girl stuff, um, which not all, you know. But that's like kind of the approach that they have. Um, and it's the same with weight, too. And this article is from sciencefriday.com, very, very legit <laughs> website. Um, and this quote is, foods associated with black culture, such as fried chicken, sweet potato pie, and biscuits have consistently been stigmatized as inferior. There are many ways to eat nutritiously, and yet the media generally presents a relatively narrow image of a healthy diet. They do this by drawing attention away from broad food groups and focusing on the merits and faults of specific foods or nutrients. Certain items are included in the good and healthy category, while others are excluded and portrayed as bad and unhealthy. These acts of inclusion and exclusion certainly do, not, do have something to do with the food's nutritional properties, but they also have a lot to do with the food's cultural and racial associations and histories. Foods are classified as healthy, not just because of what they are, but also because of what they represent and who they have been historically produced and consumed by. Just as ideas about healthy foods are culturally and racially inculcated, so too are notions about who is healthy and what healthy is. That's the end of the quote. <sighs> yeah. And, and see, I, I can also pick out like, labeling things as good and bad. And if you can remember the episodes I've done about intuitive eating, one of the biggest takeaways there is that there are no good and there are no bad foods. And one example that I come back to time and time again is broccoli. We, If I were to ask you, is broccoli healthy? Yes or no? Most likely people would say yes. And yeah, <laughs> but there are some people who actually eating those types of foods like broccoli. It's not very nourishing for them. It's not good for their digestion. It's not good for their hormonal cycles, right? And so we can't label things as good or bad or healthy and unhealthy, especially when all bodies are so different. Not only are so all bodies so different, but the ideas of what's healthy and what's not is so racially rooted. So hearing all this, what's next, right? And I have more to talk about. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, but just thinking about all this and thinking like, okay, well, what do I do with that? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It, like that's a lot of information I just gave you. Um, and again, someone who studies this would probably have more information. Um, but I think the main thing that you should do with this information is how can you incorporate this into your life moving forward? How can you think a bit more critically? And I think that's something that I, I have said again and again, and I will say again and again, because it's so true. How can you think critically about the information that you're receiving? When you watch one of those like poppy 10-minute segments on what the newest healthy food and what the newest unhealthy food is, how can you, instead of accepting everything as truth and accepting everything wholly, how can you pause before you accept that information? 
how can you kind of check in with your own body too, right? Like how can you see if there's any resistance? How can you see if that feels right to you? You know when you've heard like you've always felt something to be true or you've always noticed a certain thing, but you've never heard anyone else talk about it. And then the second you hear someone talk about it or read something about it, you think, oh yeah, I thought so. I wonder if you have that sensation in your body when you hear about these these new health fads. Um, and then if you hear something like making broad generalizations about whole groups of foods and whole types of meals and whole kinds of diets, how can you think critically and how can you also think what else could be at play here, right? So for the example of a wine every, a a glass of wine every week actually makes you healthier, how can you think, okay, how else, like how could that be true that the scientists got this result, which you should read the whole study because I don't think that's what they said. Um, but how could it be true that they got this result? Like what other variables could have been included in this? Could people who drink one glass of wine also be people who are commonly runners and and good sleepers and eat balanced meals? Probably, right? Having one glass of wine a week is is kind of a very specific type of person. And so what would that kind of person also be doing in their life? And could those things also be making that person healthier? And also thinking about what we know about alcohol, which is totally worth another series on the podcast. So don't even get me started. (laughs) I do have a series of reels about alcohol, though. What do we know about alcohol? We know that it's the same thing that's used in gasoline. So is the same thing that's used in gasoline, could that be something that makes us healthier when we have a little bit? Probably not right? So how can we think critically about that information instead of just accepting it and moving forward with it? And so same with things that could be racist in its roots, right? Is rice really unhealthy? Like, does that sit well with you? And I'm using rice, um, the article used fried chicken as an example. Um, But starting to think about what other things could be at play, whether it's racism or whether it's capitalism or colonialism um, fat phobia, like what could that be at play in the information that you're getting? So the next thing I'm going to talk about (laughs) is the last thing, but I'm a little nervous (laughs) because I feel like it's going to be taken the wrong way. So just like with intermittent fasting, if you are a faster, I don't judge you. I If it's something that feels good to you, like I said last week, if it's something that authentically aligns with your body, if it's something that feels good, you're not hungry in between meals, you're not starving yourself, you're not experiencing negative effects, then go for it. I think that's great. And I want to have that same mentality when I go into this next thing. And I'm not saying that this thing is bad at all. I am saying that it's something to think about and, and Not even that you should think about if you practice this, but it is something to think about with the general system of capitalism, right? So (laughs) I'm going to stop beating on the bush. It's veganism, right? So I know a lot of vegans in my personal life. I know a lot of people in spiritual communities who are vegans. Um, I know 
yeah, people are vegan for health reasons, for environmental reasons, for um, spiritual reasons, personal reasons, their own health reasons. They found a lot of health relief from veganism. So that's all really great. The first thing I'll say is veganism has been significantly whitewashed, um, and that's very similar to the way that yoga has been really whitewashed. So I'm someone who does practice yoga. I'm someone who really finds benefit in yoga, and I'm also a white person, so I don't know how valid this outlook is or opinion is, but I do think it's okay to practice yoga, even if it's from another culture, even though with all the considerations that you can take to try and be as authentic when you're in the West, um, it's always going to be a different version of yoga than what was traditionally born. And I think that's okay, Um, especially because a lot of people do find comfort and and growth and spiritual development and kindness and compassion and service from practicing yoga. But it's also important to just notice that we've really whitewashed yoga. We have put a big barrier on yoga, right? A lot of yoga studios, I don't have a stat on this, but a lot of yoga studios are owned by white people. The classes are very expensive. And the classes are filled with a lot of white people. And that's fine. Like white people can practice yoga, but that's so whitewashed. It's putting a pay barrier on something that I don't think should have a really high pay barrier. Of course, teachers and studios deserve to be paid for their work. And it doesn't seem super aligned with kind of the the spirit of yoga to have it that way. Yoga is also a very aesthetic practice as well. I know a lot of people kind of like impersonally who call themselves yogis, yet they're, they don't practice like a yogi mentality or they don't have that service attitude. And I'm not trying to be judgmental. It's just a noticing that I'm having that it's kind of aesthetic to be a yogi. It's aesthetic to wear and, and have like pretty yoga things. And that's all good too. Like I have a, a cute yoga mat and I like it and it, I feel good rolling it out in the morning. Um, yeah, but we've just really like aestheticized yoga. <laughs> um, and we've kind of done that with veganism as well. Um, this is from an article that I will, uh, it's called theveganreview.com. Um, and this is just a quote from them. The whitewashing of veganism is what causes us to picture the typical vegan as middle-class white and Western instead of brown and Arabic. It distorts the image of veganism, causing a lot of non-vegans to think of it as elitist and exclusionary when it originates from some of the most low-income societies. Some of the poorest communities are vegan by default. For example, some parts of India are predominantly vegetarian and vegan. In other cases, however, people in poorer countries are vegan because they're starving. The problem with veganism as a class issue is that it not only assumes privilege, but also that everyone has the privilege of choice. 
When in fact, if these people had a choice, they might not be vegan because they wouldn't choose to starve. Their only choice is to consume calories wherever they can. Contrastingly, in many parts of the U.S., for example, people have consistent access to nourishing foods. And this article goes on to say, Concerning the skills to cook, it also brings in the issue of ableism. Veganism fails to acknowledge the physiological or psychological barriers that can prevent people from following this lifestyle. Some disabled people, for example, will be unable to cook meals for a vegan diet or travel for the ingredients if they aren't locally available. And Sam's side note, vegan ingredients are often quite expensive. Okay, unside note. This brings in another barrier aside from classism. Furthermore, despite being low cost, vegetables, vegetables and starches require time and money to maintain and utilize. This is also from the article. In 2020, a report found that in the UK, at least 900,000 people were living without a fridge and 1.9 million people without a cooker. A fridge is essential to preserve the quality of vegetables and living without one would make being a vegan <laughs> sorry, it would make a vegan diet incredibly difficult if not impossible. Similarly, a cooker is extremely useful to maximize the use of those vegetables and starches. Sammy side note, it's also a way to make your food tastier as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if that Sammy side note was super worth it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's just, I quoted the whole article there because it was just so, so good and so important. Um, and I also want to dive into the argument that the vegan, <laughs> I can't talk today, Jesus, the vegan diet is um, promoted as being the best option for the planet and the best option for the environment and your, your own footprint. Um, and it certainly can be. So I'm not saying that that's not true. However, let me pull up the studies that I have. All right. So I am pulling up a BBC article called Why the Vegan Diet is Not Always Green. And it's by Richard Gray. And it was in 2020. So I'm going to just, I'm, I'm live skimming this article. <laughs> I already, I had it picked out, but I just didn't take notes on this one. Okay, so the first, <laughs> the first point in this article is that, yes, fruits and vegetables probably do have less greenhouse gas emissions, probably better for the environment, but we don't always eat things that are seasonal or in our areas, so we're also having to pay for, so that's one, extra money, and two, we're having to pay for air transport. <laughs> Air transported fruit and vegetables or like ground transported fruit and vegetables. And that can create more greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram than poultry meat, for example. And also thinking about that from an ethical point of view, right? Where are you getting these things that you're buying? Who who was growing them and what communities were they in? And now not you, <laughs> but now we are, are taking them <laughs> kind of. Um, so for example, this article says delicate fruits like blueberries and strawberries are often imported to Europe and the U S by air to fill gaps left when local fruits are out of season, because most places you can buy strawberries all year round. 
Using the avocado, for example, and this is something that's super common and super, it's also like a very aesthetic thing, but it's also really common to see that avocados are really healthy. I actually am allergic to avocados, so you're welcome, <laughs> planet. Um, and yeah, avocados can be a great source of proteins, has a lot of vitamins and fatty acids, and can be great for those who are cutting meat out of their diets, but they also use a large amount of water. A single tree in California, for example, needs up to 209 liters or 46 gallons every single day in the summer, which is more than would fill a bathtub. So that's one tree. One tree gets more than a bathtub of water each. It's like if every tree took a really long bath every day. Um, and this also is true in California, Mexico, Spain, where many commercial avocado crops are grown. And this puts a large pressure on the local environment as well. Um, and that's because they really are only supposed to grow in moist rainforest climates where their roots are getting the water that they need. And there is an increasing water shortage crisis crises in a lot of these areas where avocados are being grown. And so like whole bathtubs of water are being given to each tree. So that's obviously increasing that water shortage that they are experiencing. Other fruits such as mangoes and plums also suck up large amounts as well. A kilogram of mangoes requires 150 gallons of water, while the same amount of plums also needs 67 gallons of water. Um, and there are ways to reduce this water. However, still a lot. <laughs> um, ooh, almonds and cashew nuts. It's also where we get a lot of almond milk. So these kinds of tree nuts are perhaps the most common things that we see in vegan diets. They're packed with lots of nutrients and proteins and their milk also, not their milk, but milk made from that often tastes really good. But some of the most water intrusive large scale crops grown on the planet. Um, so on estimate, tree nuts consume 909 gallons of water for every kilogram of shelled nuts that we purchase. Wait, so what was the um, the avocado one? Let's see. 46. 46 gallons. So that's like, I don't even know how many bathtubs it takes to feed all those almonds, right? Oh my goodness, so many bathtubs. Almonds need a lot of water, pesticides, and fertilizer, which makes their environmental impact disproportionately large. I don't know the 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 comparison between almond milk versus dairy milk because I also know that takes a pretty big toll on the environment as well. But I wonder how comparable it would be. And interestingly enough, the University of Michigan estimates that cashews release the most carbon, uh, which is 4.9 kilograms of CO2 per kilogram by that university's calculations. That may be partly because they are such a low yield crop. So yeah, I think there's more research that I could do and that you could do to see if the ways that you're getting your vegan or vegetarian products are actually better for the environment. Where are they coming from? Oh, that actually reminded me of um, The Good Place. Um, Chidi's talking about how Oh, like he sees that he buys a tomato and he gets so many negative points. And he's like, what? Like tomatoes are good. And the 
Maya Rudolph person says, that's because like of all the emissions that it cost or whatever, or it, that it took to get that tomato to you, or like the people who picked that tomato weren't paid well, and you're actually supporting that company. Um, and so he was like, oh no, <laughs> like there's no way that we can be always good and always doing the right thing for the environment, which I think is like a really great lesson um, that we can be doing what we think is good for the environment, but actually are we? So it's, it's worth looking into. I also think it's worth looking into like local produce, if that's something that's in your budget as well, not always is, but just something cool to think about. And also the vegan diet is not always the healthiest one. So for some people, it can be really healthy. It can be really nourishing. Um, it can give people everything that they need, but that's not always the case. And you also have to be quite diligent, which is why I really like that article that mentioned ableism. Because I don't think I would have thought about that, that you really do have to be able to properly prepare all of your meals. You need to have a lot of information about your nutrition to make sure that you're getting all of the nourishment that you need. Um, because I actually, I didn't say this, but I was vegetarian for about a year. Um, and it was incredibly hard to get everything that I needed because I didn't know very much about nutrition at the time. And it was also not really sustainable. I was a full-time student and I was also working full-time at the same time. And, you know, I was young, (laughs) younger and, uh, silly. Um, so I wasn't, there was like other reasons why, (laughs) my nutrition was suffering, but, (laughs) um, yeah, so let's get into this. Um, one of the things that could be a potential issue with the vegan diet is that a lot of legume protein sources can increase the risk of a leaky gut. Legumes have high levels of anti-nutrients, including, oh, I don't know how to say this, lectins and phytates. I've only ever seen those written, <laughs> never said. Um, and that can, they can both increase intestinal permeability, which is also a leaky gut. On the contrary, protein sources from animals do not contain those anti-nutrients and are among the highest sources of food in terms of nu- nutrition for humans. So again, I'm certainly not saying that you should eat meat. I'm just throwing that out there. Soy protein sources can cause hormonal disruptions and higher heavy metal intake. No, that doesn't mean that you're going to be listening to more heavy metal. (laughs) Um, So a lot of people turn to soy as a protein source, which I think people are starting to learn more about how it's eh, maybe not so great, but they do have that added risk of hormone interference, especially if you're someone who is trying to regulate their cycle, which I know a lot of listeners are trying to do. Um, So if that's something you are doing and you are a vegetarian, perhaps think about cutting back on your soy intake. There is the risk of anemia due to a lack of iron. So that's probably something you've heard a lot before. So thinking about how you can incorporate iron in your diet is really helpful. Um, Iron supplements can be fine, um, but it can be difficult to take enough iron supplements to overcome that, um, especially because some iron supplements can lead to things like constipation. Um, and what's interesting, I learned this from Good Witch Kitchen, aka Kristen Ciccolini, 
um, she did another podcast, I think. She didn't say this on mine. I don't know if she said it on hers or if she was a guest on someone else's. Um, but she also said it might be worth considering cooking with a cast iron pan. So I thought that was really interesting that that could – she said it's not really the same thing um, as eating iron, but you will get a little boost in your iron, which I thought was really interesting. Because you're not eating fish or meat – there is the increased risk of depression because you're having lower omega-3 fatty acid intakes. Um, I've, I take a omega-3 supplement, um, but I also find that, you know, supplements are never the, the, the uh, it's not my go-to for adding things in, but I really hate fish. <laughs> so I'm not going to be eating fish anytime soon. So for me, that was avoided that way. There is the risk of the B12 vitamin deficiency. Vegans are at a higher risk of developing this deficiency. Um, but there are ways to have this through other vegetables and other foods and supplements as well. Um, and this is where another barrier comes in with veganism is that it can be really helpful to test your blood levels and to see a nutritionist who can help you really like zero in on how much B12 you're getting every day, which also requires a very specific budget, which also requires specific access, right? So to do veganism, quote, 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 um, the healthiest way, um, you would need access to all these things. So that can be that kind of class barrier that people don't talk about. Um... Hold on one moment. With vegan and vegetarian diets, there can be an inhibition of zinc absorption. It is theorized that this problem is maybe because of the higher consumption of plant foods, which contain <laughs> phytic acid and may inhibit the ability of the body to absorb ink. And zinc is really great for the immune system. And plant sources of zinc are not as bioavailable as animal sources. So it, again, if you're vegan, make sure you're getting enough food from these, or enough zinc from these foods, maybe even supplements. And there's also the risk of consuming too much carbohydrates. I also, that's like verging on diet culture, right? Um, but it's true. I, <laughs> I like definitely had that um, issue myself, which was that I was always hungry because I wasn't having as much protein. So I was eating a lot more carbohydrates, which again, isn't bad. Um, but people might notice themselves eating more refined carbs as well, like breads, crackers, cookies, all things that are good, but also if, if done in excess, right, might not always be super helpful. So all of that information was from Clean Eating Kitchen. Com. I also think it's worth touching on the overlap between disordered eating, orthorexia, and veganism. So one thing that I hear people saying a lot is clean eating. And I've said this too in my life. <laughs> it's clean. Like I want to eat clean this week or I want to eat cleaner. Um, and that can kind of be a slippery slope, again, with that kind of mindset of, of eating and viewing foods that can be um, a little bit harmful. And it's not that necessarily veganism leads to disordered eating. And also, 
it could be more common. At least one study found that vegans and vet I was going to say veterinarians, gosh, vegetarians tended to display more orthorexic eating patterns, and most eating disorder specialists do not recommend restrictive diets such as veganism or vegetarianism for people trying to recover from an eating disorder such as orthorexia. Um, so yeah, something just to think about and kind of reflect on. Personally, I don't treat eating disorders. I don't treat eating disorders. I don't specialize in that. Um, I think that's something for me that I would refer out to a counselor or therapist or someone who does specialize um, in eating disorders, but it's something to think about. And also meat and poultry can be good for you. And there's also downsides and a lot of health, I was going to say not benefits, but whatever that word is, <laughs> um, of meat and poultry as well. However, some meat and poultry can be good for you if it's something that you choose to incorporate. It has iodine that helps your body produce thyroid hormones. It helps the iron to carry oxygen around your body. It helps you get zinc that keeps your immune system strong and is also really helpful for your reproductive health, aka your cycle. It helps give you B vitamin B12 for your nervous system and again, omega-3 to support heart and brain health. So yeah, I'm not saying that if you're a vegan, you should automatically kind of ditch that and go towards eating meat. Absolutely not. And there's also lots of spiritual reasons why people or religious reasons that people are choosing to abstain. And that's also something that I respect and think is so beautiful. Um, I'm more wanting to come at this from a point of view of like, this isn't the healthiest way to be. This isn't the best way to be for the environment. And if that's if you're doing it because you think it's the best way, then maybe it's worth reconsidering, right? Or maybe it's worth, again, thinking of where you got that idea from and kind of thinking critically and, and also focusing on your body and seeing what works best for you and your body. Um, and also, I think a vegan diet is fine. Again, it just needs like kind of a more intense um, upkeep or attention to detail, education, which can be self-education or education through someone else, um, because it's pretty common for vegans and vet I want to say veterinarians, vegetarians, to just not really eat enough or eat well enough to sustain healthy hormone levels, to nourish themselves properly. And if you are doing it for weight loss, Again, that's fine. And also, um, like, is it is it the best way to lose weight? I'm not sure. Unless you really know what you're kind of doing, it can be common to gain weight on these diets as well because you're hungrier and, <laughs> and there's less food available. So, yeah. Anyways, certainly not anti-vegan at all, um, but I'm kind of just here to offer another perspective that we don't see so much in the like health and spirituality space, which is that I think it's absolutely fine to eat um, animal products. I also think it's great to eat products that are sustainably raised, sustainably, I mean, slaughtered. Um, 
like how are they living, right? In the in the series I'm going to do about this, so I'll get into it a little bit more later, but I'll just throw this in there. Notice <laughs> your chicken and your eggs. Just because it's free range or cage free doesn't necessarily mean anything. You can look up what does cage free really look like and it's heartbreaking. But technically they're not in a cage. They're all smushed together and they're all they all look awful and unhealthy and sad. Um, but they're not in a cage. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that that episode that I'll be doing. I'll also do some posts on that as well because it can be really helpful to know the difference between organic and, um, oh, it was on the tip of my tongue. What was the other one? I don't know. <laughs> natural, natural and organic. That's what I was going to say. There's cage-free, there's free-range, there's pasture-grazed or pasture-raised or something, which last time I checked, pasture was the ideal one. But I'm sure there's ways around that too. So I don't know. Um, I'll have to do my research on that one before that episode. I'm looking forward to that though. <sighs> if there's any other topics you'd like to see me talk about, please let me know. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you didn't feel like I was coming for you if you're a vegetarian or if you practice yoga. Because I'm certainly not. And just definitely good for us to think about. All right. Um... Reach out if you have any questions, any insights, any opinions, any feedback. Uh, but otherwise, I will talk to you on Thursday. <laughs>